M2 is going to continue to fall. This is a massive experiment by the Federal Reserve. I don't even know what the ramifications are. Absolutely, we have no idea what's going to happen. The Fed does. Nobody does. But in my mind, it ain't good. The measure of inversion is conviction. This is the bond market's conviction that we're going to be right and you're going to have to lower rates and you're going to have to lower them significantly. It's just the bond market going, it's not going to work. You're going to create a recession and you're going to be forced to cut. End of story. Welcome back to the Bitcoin Layer. Today, we are joined by a very special guest, one that I'm extremely excited to have on the show, Mr. Randy Woodward. He is a fixed income bond broker at Raymond James Financial. Randy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. For sure. Likewise, you know, this is a conversation I've been looking forward to for quite some time. Uh, followed you on Twitter for a very long time, the self-avowed bond freak. That is your Twitter handle. You're certainly one of the best best places to go for all of the fixed income knowledge. So going to have a wide ranging discussion today, uh, hopefully touching on a lot of that. I want to kick things off with uh, liquidity. We'll talk about liquidity conditions and then dive a little bit into what the Fed is doing, how it's impacting credit and, uh, and debt markets more broadly. Um, specifically other deposit liabilities. This is a, a metric that you, your Twitter initially put me onto mm -hmm. as a better measure for global liquidity. So why don't you talk to the viewers right now about what other deposit liabilities are um, and basically how it plays into the current uh, situation with money supply? Well, ODL is something I didn't even know about it until Lacey Hunt came out uh, from Hoisington Management. He brought it up maybe six months ago, maybe a little longer. And, and I'm, I'm fortunate to know Lacey fairly well. And so, you know, I've called him several times on it and we followed it together. And basically what he says, it's the most spendable money. He said, you know, I think the total deposits of banks is north of 17 trillion. But he says not all of that is necessarily spendable money. And so what he did is he started following ODL as something that is, you know, more in line with spendable money, spendable cash. And of course, that's going to have an impact on inflation. So he feels that's a better measurement and probably a more uh, a leading indicator of inflation or disinflation or deflation than other measures. We're going to take a quick break to talk to you about this show's sponsor, River Financial. I love buying Bitcoin and River is my favorite place to buy it. They have zero fees when you dollar cost average and they have their own proprietary multi-sig setup so you know that your Bitcoin is held with them and not lend out to any other custodians. You guys, River is setting a new standard in Bitcoin. You can invest today by going to river.com or by clicking the link in the video description for a special offer. And now back to the show. Got it. Okay. Spendable money. That's a tremendous way to put it. Um, you know, from the standpoint of a lot of what we're talking about right now is, uh, is how quickly the Fed is removing money supply from the system, but having the best proxy for money supply really helps when, uh, when sort of making that argument. Um, I'm pulling up a chart right now for the viewers, and it's mm -hmm. a chart that I sent to you uh, a little bit earlier. And this is a chart of other deposit liabilities. Uh, and you could see it's come down pretty substantially from its peak here, uh, $16.7 something like that, I believe, uh, basically. And it peaked right around when the Fed began its interest rate hikes. And now it's fallen uh, to $15.25 So pretty, uh, you know, pretty big fall mm -hmm. in spendable money. What are the implications here for price inflation? Well, you know, it, it's complicated because you've got QT, which 
<laughs> it seems debatable about really, you know, how QE adds money to the system, how QT takes money from the system. Some say it has no impact, some say it does. But the fact remains that M2 is coming down. And I think you're going to show that here in a minute. And mm -hmm. that's, you know, there's no other way to put it. Money is being destroyed. And that can be done in several, can be created and destroyed in several different ways. I do believe the Fed with QT is destroying money. Um, and then as banks cease to lend, now, again, this is a, a rate of change. They're not going to just stop lending, but as they slow down and they stay, and I, most of my clients, and I guess this is a good opportunity maybe to explain really quickly what I do yeah. uh, more specifically is, so I started at Bloomberg in 1988. That's how I got into this whole world. And most of what I've done my entire career is deal with banks uh, and credit unions for the most part. Um, in 95, I left Bloomberg to become a bond broker. So what I do is I sell bonds to banks all across the country. So I'm seeing, I know exactly what their portfolios look like. I know exactly what they're experiencing. I'm talking to them every single day. And this is kind of what I've been trying to relay on Twitter. And we're going to get more into it as we go is also trying to tell people where they've been so wrong. Financial media has been so wrong in so many ways about what's going on with banks. But the fact is deposits are coming down and you know, there's this argument that banks can create deposits so they don't really need deposits to create loans. That's ridiculous. Yes, on the whole, over time, that is the case. That is, if a bank makes a loan, they create deposits, but that doesn't necessarily mean it flows right to them. So if their deposits are coming down, they're having to lend less. In a lot of cases, I would actually say most cases of my clients, they're shrinking. And so that's going to be less credit availability, less money to spend. And you got to figure and, and, you know, and again, Lacey said, and he was so right, ODL, because it's a fairly quickly uh, uh, updated number, is going to lead M2 lower. And it's exactly what's been happening. So this just all, me, you know, to me, if you're a monetarist and if you follow, you know, Irving Fisher and Friedman and whatnot, if you cut the supply of money, that's deflation. And I believe ultimately that's where we're headed. And this is one of the numbers that I think proves that. One of the one of the slew of numbers that I think proves yeah. that it's been uh, it's been something on the mind of of many people. And now that we've returned to uh, from nine point one percent consumer price inflation all the way down to um, all the way down to 2.97, rounded up to mm -hmm. three. A lot of people are finally coming around to the reality that, whoa, it's 12 months straight. Maybe the risks are posed to the downside here. So well, that's uh, why they keep moving the goalposts, by the way, right? So mm -hmm. the Fed's changed what it wants to consider inflation twice now, two big changes. So, you know, this is why they go to PCE, core. We don't want to take food and energy out of there. And then recently they took, they went to Supercore, right? Because we want to take out housing too. Because look, I think it's a really important thing. When the Fed is ready to cut rates or, or even pause or whatever, they want to control the narrative. They want to control uh, what they're going to do and what they expect the market to do. They don't want the market getting ahead of them. So that's why they keep changing and moving and, and trying to divert attention 
fact is CPI has come down dramatically. It's a lagging effect. And my opinion is, is I think the Fed might lose control. And, you know, this is why Powell's very, very, very careful. When somebody hit two or three times in his conferences, press conferences, someone has said, your efforts to bring down prices, he immediately jumps out of his skin, says, no, 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 no. I'm trying to bring down the rate of change. I want to bring it to disinflation. I want less inflation. He does not want to bring prices down because that's deflation. And that's a whole other story, another topic. But that deflation can get way more out of hand than inflation. And that scares the hell out of him. So these these little mnemonics of of thought that he proposes and changing the narrative on CPI and what their target is, very purposeful because he doesn't want to lose control. Absolutely. Very deliberate. And that's something we've talked about on the show in the past too, has been um, managing expectations, extremely important um, in the market. And that's sort of what Powell is trying to do. He's trying to rein in the idea that the Fed's trying to bring bring down prices, but rather um, bring the rate of change back that's down correct. to its, that's right. its long run. And most people Fed, get that wrong. Most people don't understand that. My parents mm-hmm. don't understand that. My friends who aren't in the business don't understand that. They say, well, I can't wait for food price to come down. I can't wait for rent to come back down. Da, da, da. Well, don't count on that because that's not that's not the Fed's goal. The Fed's goal is just to bring the rate of change down. Absolutely. Inflation has almost become a uh, – people conflate it with uh, with prices. When they think inflation, they think prices. Um, definitely a right. colloquialism that, that needs to be adjusted. Uh, so right. one chart I want to I want to ask you about here, you talk about how, uh, you know, Many, many will argue that, you know, it doesn't matter if banks have deposits, they're still going to write loans. But in the long run, it, it does matter. You see that lending and uh, actual uh, deposits and the amount of lending that commercial banks do, um, you know, moves in lockstep with one another. And I have a few stats, and then I'll ask you about um, uh, a chart for U.S. consumer loans. It's that uh, deposits at U.S. commercial banks fell $108.5 billion this week. And that's combining uh, or last week, rather, excuse me. And that's combining small institutions and large institutions. And then it, by the same token, uh, you saw the, uh, uh, you've seen rather over the past several months, lending from U.S. commercial banks flatlining. And if we take a look at this chart here, which is U.S. commercial loans, you're, you've seen now over the last um, three to four weeks, massive decline uh, in consumer lending. That's finally beginning to, the cycle has now shifted from rising consumer loans on net to now it's falling, um, which historically, if you take a look back um, before 2008, uh, even in the 2019 area during the Fed's last hiking cycle, this has historically preceded economic recessions. What are your thoughts here uh, as you look at this chart? So you said an important word um, a few seconds ago is flatlining. So that's, precisely what I'm talking about as far as inflation, disinflation, deflation. If if when the bank makes, when they're making loans, they are creating money, okay? If they stop making, let me say that again, if they stop growing their level of lending, that means they're flatlining and money is going to flatline, okay? Uh, then we'd have zero inflation. Okay, I mean, it's never going to work out perfectly, but if they start pulling back on lending, now we have less money creation. And that also means that they're probably going to shrink their balance sheets a little bit. And that is deflation. Okay, and somebody's got to make up for that. I don't know. It could be the Fed, could be more stimulus checks. Who knows? 
But unless something changes, again, I point to the fact, I really think we're going to see deflation in probably the next, you know, six to 12 months. I wouldn't be surprised if CPI goes negative. Wouldn't be surprised indeed. There's one last chart regarding the uh, disinflation slash deflation story that I want to pull up. And it's rather disconcerting. Of mm -hmm. course, we know um, per you that ODL is a better measure of money supply because it's spendable money. Um, but the traditional measure is uh, is M2. And if you lay M2 and CPI inflation over the top of one another and right. you lag CPI by 12 to 18 months, then you kind of see this is corroborating the idea that uh, you and I share that you just mentioned that the risk now is that CPI uh, growth actually contracts. It goes negative. We get into yeah. deflation. Right. So M2 here, your over years changed now. M2 is still super important, incredibly important to watch. And I think what Lacey's saying is ODL is just going to get ahead, way ahead of M2. And it did. I think it was it was like six to nine months. It started going negative before M2 started going negative. So it's a great leading indicator. Here's what your viewers need to really look at here is we're a negative M2, right? We're a minus 3.9% year over year. We've not done that. Maybe one little blip like in the 50s or maybe the 70s, we might have gone like just one quarter with the negative M2. Not since I think 32 maybe, which of course was all hell and fire damnation with the Great Depression. Have we done this? So the Fed, my opinion, they have no idea what the hell this is going to lead to. I mean, this is extraordinary and we're not done. You know, ODL just fell last week, another 100, 102 billion or something like that. It's still falling. M2 is going to continue to fall. This is a massive experiment by the Federal Reserve. And I don't know, I don't even know what the ramifications are. But when I look at that, this just this graph against CPI, how does CPI not go negative? That's, you know, that's going to be the big trick here. And and that's when I think things get really scary for the Fed is if we start to dip below, even start to fall below 2%, it's going to get people's attention. If we start to fall below zero, it's going to be like, oh, my God, we got to we got to do something here really fast. Absolutely. Helena Hancart, you know, 14, yeah. 14 years of rates locked at zero, followed by, I think this is since the 90s, the most consecutive 75 basis point rate hike increments. It's ever. It's ever. Yeah, it's the fastest. Listen, even, you know, people refer like, oh, Volcker did this, did that to this. Well, we didn't have 15 years of zero <laughs> before Volcker and then hmm. and then blast it faster than anybody raising rates any fed chairman ever in history this again is a grand experiment we don't really know the lag we don't know what's going to happen this is why i mean i've been very critical of the fed the whole time because they're it just it was so much so fast i wish they would have gone slower i wish they would have paused earlier to be like the adult in the room and explain look you know there are going to be transitory uh, uh, prices in here, uh, price changes in here. We don't know exactly how that's all going to work out, but we need to take our time and let things happen. But I don't know, maybe politically they got, they got pressured to have to kill inflation as fast as possible. Hmm. One grand. But this is extraordinary. That, Indeed. that minus 3.9 is just, 
it doesn't seem extraordinary, but you got to go back to 1930 and you'll see it has never happened. Okay. So what an unbelievable experiment we're getting ready to face here. It's particularly disconcerting. You know, you never want to hear the sentence. This is the first time X has happened since the great depression. You never want to hear that kind of sentence. Well, we hear, we hear that since the great financial crisis all day long. Right. That gets my attention. There was one we'll talk about if we have time that Cleveland Fed just put something out. But, yeah, if it's since the Depression, that, that's a whole different ballgame. That's a That's a absolutely we have no idea what's going to happen here. The Fed does. Nobody does. But in my mind, it's it ain't good. It ain't good at all. Absolutely. Nobody has any idea. You mentioned the uh, the Cleveland Fed report. Um, when uh, we'll talk about, uh, we can talk about other, other signs of deflation, deflation, you're mm-hmm. seeing outright deflation, the Cleveland fed report, uh, put up a chart. I don't have it here, uh, but I may okay. bring it up for the viewers. It is the, uh, the fed new tenant repeat rent index on a year over year, uh, percent change. And similar to this M2 chart that we just pulled up, uh, you tweeted this out and that is in deflation too. So that's pretty disconcerting. Yep. What other findings did that Cleveland fed paper have? So let me explain that. It's pretty fascinating. So. The Cleveland Fed had been monitoring for many, many years. I don't know how many it was, but a long, long time. They'd been monitoring uh, rent, you know, because rent, you know, owner's equivalent rent is what the Fed, you know, what they measure into CPI. It's about 30%. It is one of the, it's the biggest uh, input into CPI. Well, what they came up with somewhere, I think in 2005, I'm actually looking at it now. They said, you know what? We're looking at all tenant rents and that takes time, you know, because if you if you and I have a lease and we get to a point where we feel like it's too high, we're going to we're going to say, hey, look, I'm out. We're going to move out. We're going to go somewhere where the rent is cheaper. Right. But that takes time. We have a lease that goes six months, a year, two years, whatever. Right. So they said, you know, what we're going to do. We're going to start monitoring new tenant rents. The, the brand, the new first guy loans, you know, gets a rent. What's their, the new rents coming in at for similar properties and whatnot. And what their graph showed is it just went negative. And what they said is that that metric of new rents is going to lead CPI, essentially, you know, the, the, the owner's equivalent rent anywhere from nine to 12 months. And if you go back and look at that chart, it does. It absolutely leads it leads the, uh, see, uh, Cleveland does, they monitor uh, all tenant rents as well. And that's still pretty high. It's coming down pretty quick, but it's still like 7%. The new one just went negative to 0.19%. And it has not done that since 09, I think it was, right? So that's hmm. an extraordinary thing. And if you look at the uh, correlation, is incredible to CPI. Again, that is a flashing... Uh, red light to me that are, are you sure you're not c- putting deflation into the game here and we'll we'll see what happens but it it really struck me as a powerful number absolutely extremely powerful and again you know the the amount of things we've been saying that this is the first since the great depression or the first since the great financial crisis it's disconcerting and i think your phrasing of it all being one big experiment is a great way to articulate the last the what seems appears to be the natural outcome of the last uh, 15 years of experimental monetary policy Absolutely, i think the Josh, introduction exactly of right. 
Yeah, the introduction of mass quantitative easing and now removing all that money from the system, it's fascinating. They're going to find out they can't do it. I I think in the end, what they're going to discover is we cannot remove quantitative easing. We can't shrink the balance sheet. I I think that it's it's the ramifications are going to be severe. And and I've asked some, I've challenged some economists to this. And they just, you know, when they talk about, well, what about, hey, M2's going down deflation. And they're like, Eh, they'll just QE again. I'm like, oh, okay, great answer. Excellent. Well, that's a, it's, I, I believe it's a stated goal of Jerome Powell this cycle to never have to go back to 0% interest rate policy. Mm-hmm. Um, are they trying to move into an era where they're less reliant on QE, less reliant on the zero lower bounds? And do you think that that's viable? Do you think they can do that? It, it, no, I don't. I, I, I think most, if you really go to the guys who've been doing this a really long time, they could, first off, Fed speak is, is what it is. It's no different than what they got to say that, you know, Yellen has to come out and say, I don't see a recession in our, our future. There is nothing else she can say because if she comes out and says, Oh yeah, absolutely. We're going to have a recession, but we'll keep it mild. That'll, that could freak markets out. You know, so they got to stay positive. You know, whoever the economic uh, czar is for the administration has to say this is the best economy we've ever had. Doesn't matter if it's Republican, Democrat, anybody. That's what they have to say. So the Fed, a lot of what you see the Fed, they have to say these things to try to manage the outcome. Now, go ahead and introduce what you're showing and then I'll, I'll continue. Fantastic. Yes, all about managing expectations. So this is a three-month, 10-year yield curve. The more popular yield curve to uh, to use and to monitor is the uh, the two-year, 10-year yield curve. But this is the difference between the yield on the three-month treasury bill and the 10-month uh, treasury note, uh, 10-year treasury note, rather, excuse me. And historically, this uh, the re-steepening of this curve precedes recessions. But more broad strokes, it uh, an inversion of this curve um, meaning that uh, front end rates are lower or higher than long end rates means that people are uh, are discounting uh, what may happen in the economy. This is a big signal of recession and a big signal of Fed policy error. So, what are your what's your take on what the yield curve is doing right now? Okay, so the word I like to use on this when you, when you're talking about inversion, which you have three the three month which is very much controlled by the Fed because they control the short end. That's Fed funds target rate. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going to take it up again this week, another 25 basis points. They can control the short end. They can't control the long end. And mm-hmm. we're using tens here. So a 10 year investment. So what this is saying is that I'm willing to, in, to invest in 10 years at 1.578% less than I am a three-month T-bill, okay? That's not supposed to ever be the case. We're always supposed to have an upwardly sloping um, yield curve uh, because when you invest in 10 years, you're taking on duration risk. You know, you're stuck at that rate for 10 years and rates could, you know, go up and you're going to miss out on that. So, you know, you should be paid more for the longer end of the curve. What this is saying is that Nope. The bond market's like, no, I'm going to take less. I want to lock it in now because I know what you're doing. I know that you've risen rates. You're going to create a recession and then you're going to have to lower rates again. So if let if I get, say, it doesn't matter if I get six months, a year, year and a half, two years, and I'm, you know, 
I got my tenure locked in. Well, what if I get this three month and all of a sudden rates are lower and then they go lower and then they go lower. So that's why they're willing to take less yield now because they know their reinvestment rate is going to be significantly lower than it is today. And so that's when you get an inverted curve and the, the, the measure of inversion is conviction. This is the bond market's conviction that we're going to be right. And the Fed, it's not that the Fed's going to be wrong. I think the Fed knows damn well what they're doing here. It's just that they know you're going to have to lower rates and you're going to have to lower them significantly. And this happened to Greenspan and he was asked about this in, in, in Congress and he just said it's a conundrum. Because they said, well, you keep raising rates, but the tenure keeps going down. He's like, it's a conundrum. you know. And really what it is, it's not a conundrum. It's just the bond market going, it's not going to work. You're going to create a recession and you're going to be forced to cut. End of story. And so they pile into the long end where when rates are inevitably cut, they have more uh, upward potential for price appreciation. Right. I mean, you rate. go with the tenure today at, let's say it's right around 380 and most likely in a year, it's going to be someone significantly lower that, and the short end is going to be even lower than that. It'll basically, it's a, it's going to, uh, what do we call that? A bull flattener where, you know, prices are going to go up, but they're going to go up more so on the short end. Those yields are going to come down and then we'll have a normal curve again. But as you can see, you've got the red shaded areas here are all recessions. These These inversions all just predict the recession to come. And- that's how, and they've never been wrong. They've never been wrong, indeed. So if that's the case, the Fed is slated to hike another 25 bips in two days on Wednesday. We're recording this on Monday, and it's going to go live uh, in a couple hours when we're done recording here. Our editor is marvelous. He's watching this right now. A very quick turnaround. So with the Fed slated to hike, you know, policy rate expectation, 95% chance. So that's not yep. changing. They're definitely going to hike by another it's 25 bips. It's effectively points. 100, yeah. So- if if the yield curve is saying that that they're wrong and the Fed probably knows they're wrong per per what you said, then why are they hiking again? I don't know. You know, it's it's I think you know, who the hell knows? I mean, it, probably to give them even more space to cut, because like you said earlier, I don't think Powell doesn't want to go back to zero bound. It's a that's a handcuff, man. And it 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 it, it, it that causes they got to go to QE. You know, cuts are, are, you know, it's forward guidance. And it's, you know, you go to zero, you lose your forward guidance on cutting rates, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's uh, what Bernanke said, you know, 97% of policy is just words, right? It's not even actions. And it's he's he's 100% right. And he, he took it to a whole new level when he became the chairman. So why, I don't know, maybe to give themselves more room, it's going to continue to hurt banks. Because it just means more money is going to roll into money market funds. Banks are going to, if they're going to keep those deposits, they're going to have to raise their deposit rates again. And all their, you know, not all, but a significant uh, part of their balance sheet is stuck at, you know, low invested rates in loans and securities from the last 15 years, particularly 2021. It's just going to probably cause more problems for banks. I don't know why. I don't know why they're doing it. And and what he's going to do Wednesday, my prediction is they'll rate, they have to raise rates because that's what the market expects, and that's what they've sold. It's the he's going to probably sell another pause for the September meeting, and then probably say you know data dependent we go into November. I don't think he wants to raise again, but 
he wants to leave doubt so he can control it because man once he says we're done then the market just shifts into cut mode and i would say probably will invert even more and and because now we know you know you, you got to have a a, a full time permanent pause before you can cut and that's hmm. that's that's going to be the game over the next few months that seems to be the case. So with with the price inflation battle basically won, right, and risk posing now mm-hmm. negative to, to the deflation side of things, um, basically the only enemy left on the battlefield, the way that I phrased it, is that the only enemy left on the battlefield, and it's not really an enemy, it's the financial institutions that are holding assets, yeah. uh, both loans and securities that have interest rate risk associated with them, both in the form of like defaults and uh, devaluation, right, with things like uh, U.S. Treasuries and other fixed income. So- with that being the case, I want to get your take on a sentence that I saw earlier today on Twitter, and that is yield curve inversions don't predict recessions, they cause them, meaning that right, given banks borrow short and they lend long, um, when front-end rates are this high uh, and long-end rates are this low, it raises borrowing costs relative to the cost that banks can lend at. So not only are they getting this huge deposit flight um, unless they jack up their own rates, um, but they're now hemorrhaging money and putting themselves at risk. Do you put? Do you lend any credence behind that statement? They they cause recessions. No, that's you know I've actually never really heard anybody say that, and that's probably not too bad. I you know there's so many moving parts. Does it mm-hmm. cause it? You know in a vacuum? No, it's it's predicting it. It's I would say more so mm-hmm. it predicts. My banks, even with this inverted curve. Any new loans are not going to be below what they're paying for deposits. End of story. Mm-hmm. Okay. But that's new loans. The, all the assets that are stuck, that's a different story though, because that it doesn't really matter if the curve's inverted. It 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 kind of does. You know, that's interesting because it is it's hard for my clients right now that, hey, you're paying five, five and a quarter for deposits, and what do you got in treasuries? Well, <laughs> nothing. Everything's below that. So, you know, they, the only place they can go to is lending and, you know, lending slowing down. And, and so, yeah, maybe so. Maybe that, you know, this inversion is, is let's, let's say it's contributing to a recession. I, I think that's a good way to put it. We're going to take a quick break to talk about Passport. This is a device by Foundation Devices, Bitcoin hardware wallet that you already know how to use. It has a gorgeous design and a very sleek and familiar interface, so you'll know how to use it the moment that you take it out of the box. If you've been on the fence about taking your Bitcoin off exchanges, this is the hardware wallet for you. Several exchanges that offer Bitcoin have turned out to be totally bankrupt over the last year, and if you leave your Bitcoin on exchanges, you're leaving yourself open to your Bitcoin being completely gone. With Passport, it takes just a few minutes to set up and experience the peace of mind that comes with taking your Bitcoin off exchanges and into your own hands. Take responsibility today. Go to foundationdevices.com and use code BitcoinLayer for $10 off your passport or just click the link in the video description. Now on with the show. Contributing. Phenomenal. I love it. All right. So one thing I want to I want to move into here as we talk about banks, we're going to we're going to chat a little bit more about banks. Um, if we look at this chart here, which is the total amount of uh, emergency Fed lending, We'll note that it, it's fallen off uh, somewhat in the primary facilities, like in the white, that's the discount window, the, the Fed's main lending facility, and uh, also other credit extensions. That has steadily declined over the last several weeks. And the Bank Term Funding Program, which is the newest Band-Aid acronym created by the Federal Reserve, 
has also stabilized a little bit. So talk to us about the state of banks, right? Um, where are they at right now in terms of the need for emergency loans? And is this patchwork or is this a lasting, uh, has this thus far been a lasting engineer, engineering solution by the Fed that could uh, could could stem the, uh, the pain a little bit here and potentially um, you know, soften the blow of any upcoming recession? Um, I think it's going to soften the, it, it, well, not even think, it absolutely has softened the blow to banks in, in that they've been able to stabilize deposits. They've been able to, well, and also replace deposits with this BTFP program, uh, bank term funding program, which <clears throat> is an extraordinary, unbelievable, never seen in the history of man lending facility. I don't think that's what people realize. You know, so BTFP, we call it a mnemonic. So we've had extraordinary efforts from, well, for a long time, but particularly from 08. That's, there was all these programs, all these things, what was it, a ca clunkers for cash or what all, all these different things where it is supplying funding, supplying funding. But there was nothing like the BTFP where, you get to, you know, hey, all right, you're short on money. Great. Come to us. You can borrow the money and, you know, you're going to have to pay for it. But it's a it's better than any other rate you can get. Uh, the terms are extraordinary, better than any other terms you can get. Um, it, it it saved a, a lot of banks, I bet. I know. And I don't think it's ever going to go away. I think it's going to be there permanently. It may actually could be reasons it can go to zero. But I think banks are going to always have that as a backstop if they instead of if they're short money, if they need the money, instead of having to being forced to sell securities, they can just lend it to the Fed and or lend securities to the Fed and borrow that money. Boy, that's just that's a big volatile event that they've just taken off the plate. Um, and I mean, look, you go from I mean, just look at the graph itself. You go from zero to 100 in, in one month. It. it you know, because of the fail bank failures. And it, that, that's, this is amazing. You know, and I'll, I'll give you a number I always say on Twitter and anybody who will listen. If you read um, When Genius Failed, which is about uh, long-term capital management failing, forget what year it was, like 98 or something. You know, that was an absolute extraordinary event where Greenspan organized all the Wall Street banks to come together and come up with some money to bail out LTCM. Because if they didn't, they said it was all going to be Armageddon, financial Armageddon around the, uh, the whole planet. It was basically, I think Russia just said, uh, we're not going to pay our loans so and, and on our bonds. So that just blew LTCM up. Point being is that number was about $3.5 billion. That's the number they had to come up with. Now, I know we've had a lot of inflation, but we've gone from billions to trillions in those short period of times we and we're that we treat trillions now just like we treated billions then like not even i don't even want to say that billions back then was like holy crap three billion that was the bailout oh my god it was just so cataclysmic it was a huge story they wrote books about it da, da, da. and now we throw trillions around like we're just like uh eh. you know btfp now is probably itself is a little over 100 billion eh. Just What's a few hundred billion between on. friends anyway, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, it's just it's like, that. you know, nobody's, you know, like even uh, all this, you know, oh, we're going to forgive, try to give 400 billion in student loans. And it's like, ah, well, why not? We should do that. You know, nobody thinks, 
400 billion i mean somebody owns that stuff somebody that's mostly government but i mean it's that'll have ramifications too so it's uh we just throw these numbers around nobody nobody realizes how extraordinary they are absolutely no one realizes how extraordinary they are and it seems to me that um i think your take on btfp being a permanent facility is right we've seen that every sort of temporary uh, facility that's been put up by the Fed over the last many decades, um, the, 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 the lion's share of them, the ones that have become important, uh, have just stayed and become permanent. And I think that this will be that because ra- they've basically, what the Fed has done here is they've essentially eliminate, eliminated that huge tail risk of yeah. banks having to sell these U.S. treasuries, which would lead to this, this horrible loop, um, right. kind of like we saw in the U.K. With, with the pension funds that threaten their solvency. The Fed has basically created a facility that's eliminated that tail risk. So why get rid of it? This probably this program would have saved uh, Silicon Valley. I don't think they would have had a run. The reason they had a run is because Goldman, by the way, doing the right thing, doing the prudent thing, took a loss on their AFS portfolio of two billion dollars. Which, by the way, and for the viewers, that's available for sale. Yes, available for sale. Their portfolio was actually quite conservative. Everybody's like, oh, they bought bad bonds. You know, certain financial media pundits that like, oh, they bought bad bonds. It drives me insane. No, they did not. Mm -hmm. They bought the same bonds everybody else is buying. They bought, you know, they're all U.S. government for the most part, all U.S. government backed, agency backed. No, they actually, oh, they went too long in duration. Nope, they actually had a short duration. Their bonds were not that long. They were doing a prudent thing, but when they took the loss, uneducated depositors panicked and said, oh my God, they got these losses because the public doesn't really know that all banks have losses. The same time, you know, three, four years ago for 15 years, all banks had massive profits unrecognized, but they were still sitting, you know, at, at gains. So had the BTFP existed, Goldman would have instead taken that collateral and borrowed it from the Fed at these awesome rates, awesome conditions, and they probably would have been fine, I think. And so there's mm-hmm. a it, there is a level of uh, what you said a tail risk. They just removed this tail risk. Now, I will say this: let me plant this seed. And it is, but what if you don't have any securities uh, that the Fed will take the BTFP? They'll only take you basically U.S. Treasuries and agencies. Okay, well. You got PacWest and Western Alliance. They've been selling loans the last quarter. Okay. That's how they've been raising money. And we, I still don't know. I haven't really looked at their quarterlies yet close enough. I don't know if they're telling us what kind of losses, because I'm telling you, they're absolutely taking losses on those loans. And as a percent of principal, probably more so than what Silicon Valley took on their AFS portfolio, the bond portfolio. So, there's a lot of little maturations here where it, it's changing the landscape of banking forever. Because now if I were a bank, I got to make sure I've got some quality securities on my books. So in case I need to borrow from this program, I have that collateral. Well, what's that mean? That means I'm putting more of my money into securities and I'm lending less. Okay, so there is one ramification from all this of dozens that are going to be contracting from credit going forward. And let me tell you, it's going to last a long time. And let me tell you, the Fed has no idea 
what that's going to look like a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. But it's here to stay for a really long time. Absolutely. Fully agree with you there. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll dive into this chart here, but um, we'll talk about uh, in, in just a moment after we, we run through this. This is a bit more out there. I want to get your take after I, I phrase and explain it a little bit. Um, it brings up a good question, which is, uh, you know, if the, the Fed, the BTFP is only accepting um, uh, U.S. Treasuries, then what of all of the losses on commercial real estate loans? And what of all the losses on commercial mortgage-backed securities that people are holding, right? You mentioned PacWest having to sell loans. Well, you know, eventually, what if that gets so systemic that the Fed has to now uh, buy those loans, right? And then how many do they buy? And then awesome. do they make a new facility for that? And so mm -hmm. it's this big question of the Fed has now set the precedent that even though their government securities are the highest quality, they will buy distressed assets to save financial institutions. And I think that as credit stress continues proliferating, uh, we're going to, you know, the Fed's metal is going to be tested about, you know, whether or not they're really serious about... Uh, about uh, buying distressed assets, and they may have to expand it to other things too. Um, I have a. I want to talk to you about this really briefly. It's uh, it's just mapping the BTFP rate and the SP five hundred. So the the obviously the rate that uh, that that loans are from the BTFP facility uh, as usage of that facility rises, then this this interest rate rises. It's also kind of moved in lockstep with the S and P five hundred. It's diverged a little bit as of recently, of course. There is no direct connection between these two. Uh, it's not as if banks are posting their treasury collateral and then going and immediately buying shares of the S&P 500. But it's an interesting chart because I think that the way Michael Howell phrased it uh, to me last week, I had him on the show, was that essentially BTFP is allowing banks to extend their risk taking out beyond what would have normally happened to them. They would sell these treasuries and hunker down and de-risk. Whereas now they're getting par back on these devalued treasuries and the risk taking uh, you know, is allowed to proliferate. And that's visible in things like the S&P 500. Do you, do you lend credence to that at all? Not a bit. I think that's, mm. I think this is a coincident movement right here and has nothing, no correlation whatsoever. The BTFP is survival. It's not, mm. oh, I could take more risk. It's, it's absolute survival. Um, there is some, there is some arbitrage going on where, like right now, if I can borrow for a year at 543 and I can invest in a callable agency at 6% and make that spread, they'll do that. There's no risk there. That's a risk-free arb trade. There is some of that going on, but as it relates to the stock market, of course, I'm not a stock guy either. I'm strictly a bond guy. So I, I, I don't think there's any correlation there whatsoever. But I will say this. If you... Now that you bring stocks up, this is the only thing I could really, I could say two things about stocks. One is if you read Bernanke's essays on a great depression and you even read his biography, the, the courage to act, which is a title of hubris, like I've never seen before. He explains, he talks about the stock market a lot and to the point from the essays on the great depression is my opinion from what I got from the book is the stock market has to be managed. It cannot be allowed to crash because if you give that visual to the, all the, the, the people in this country and into these little towns all over this country, all they're going to look at is see that and be depressed. And they're going to be like, golly, things must be bad. I better hunker down, which makes things even worse. The thing I keep talking about on Twitter, I've said many, many times, I wouldn't, I, I would love to see this. Love's not the right word. 
I would be interested to see some limit down days where stocks trade down so viciously that they shut the market down for periods of time to try to get people to calm down. I like to see the feds face that and continue with their aggressive rate hikes and their aggressive policy. They haven't been challenged like that since when, you know, the first time, uh, you know, Powell went in there with all guns ablaze and when he became chairman going, Oh no, set path. We're going to raise rates. Not even going to talk about it. We're not even talking about ending rate hikes. All of a sudden, you've got a bunch of limit down days for two or three weeks, and bam, cut rates, cut rates, cut rates, cut rates, cut rates. So that's what that is my opinion is they can whistle past a graveyard because the stock market is supporting them by not getting, not trading off. Okay. That's the, I really truly believe that. And it, well, we'll see what happens. We'll see if the market ever corrects and what their reaction to that is. The other thing I would do is a little off topic, but very quickly. Go read everything Mike Green has written on passive investing. Mike Green, his Twitter is at Prof99, at P-R-O-F-99. Dig into this guy. Go find the things he's written about passive investing, which is basically just indiscriminate. You put a dollar in a mutual fund. It gets dispersed by market cap. End of story. No thinking, no thought. How that's, he believes, becomes so dominant that, that the market has to keep going up on the whole until that flow reverses and then that's when it gets scary so to me these are the things affecting the stock market is this passive investing and if it all starts to go south the fed will come in and save the day and by you know the fed put all over again absolutely managing the stock market certainly is one of the feds not not explicitly stated uh, tenants. Of course, it is two, uh, but there are, there are many more, and, and the stock market certainly is one of them. Let's talk about it this chart here. Is. You mentioned that a lot of the a lot of the pundits who were criticizing Silicon Valley Bank were saying that uh, they were you know they were buying uh, extremely risky securities. But uh, taking a look at this chart here, it seems like there's a lot of blood happening in uh, in U.S. Treasuries. This is gains and losses on Treasuries. Some of it is realized, some of it isn't. But when we're talking about losses on securities, we're not just talking about the risky stuff. We're talking about pristine collateral. So talk yeah. to us about this here. This is a great chart, actually. Uh, so if you go and you put, you know, you go look at the beginning of two, 2020, right? So what you're telling me is banks are the greatest investors of all time. They bought such awesome bonds that they have a $1 trillion profit. Okay, if you're going to tell me they're dumb for having a one trillion loss, then you got to tell me they were a genius having a one trillion profit. All of that's BS. Okay, the reason they had a one trillion profit is because the Fed took rates to zero. And if you've got a bond at whatever percent, let's say it's three percent, and rates are at three percent, your bond is worth par. Okay, that's how it works. It's worth a dollar for a dollar. If rates go to zero, or let's just say fifty basis points. Now, I've got a bond that's yielding 3% and new bonds are yielding 0.5%. If you want to buy my bond, you're not going to buy it for a dollar. You're going to buy it for a dollar five, a dollar 10, a dollar 20, 25. That makes up that premium you have to pay me brings the overall yield back down to 0.5%. There was no genius moves back then either. They weren't. And, and if a bank came to me and had these, you know, all my accounts had these amazing profits. What does that mean? Let, no, let me say that again. Amazing gains doesn't mean anything. It just means that 
yeah, we're going to get a certain amount of cash flow come back. Every dollar that comes back, unfortunately, it's going to have to be reinvested at a lower rate because that means rates are lower. That's the only reason I got those gains. Okay. So now we reverse, rates are way up. And now the unrealized losses on these portfolios are huge. Everybody's like, oh my God, it's terrible. No, absolutely not. Unless you have to sell. Unless you have a run on a bank and you don't, you know, and have to sell, you've got no problem. Actually, it's a fantastic problem to have because it means rates are higher and it means every dollar that you have come in from your securities portfolio or from your loan book gets reinvested at these new higher rates. This is actually what a bank wants, not the severity, not in this inverted curve, but it's almost as if for the future, if you could say my securities portfolio, or my bond portfolio will permanently have an unrealized loss going forward for the next 10 years, that's actually awesome because that means every time I get a dollar back, I reinvest it at a higher rate, which means my income goes higher. And that means my income goes higher and higher and higher, which means my capital goes higher and higher and higher. And my shareholders make more and more money. So that's why, you know, the only time this is a problem, your chart's a problem, is if I'm put in a position where I have to sell those bonds or I have to sell those loans. Yes, we got a problem. Otherwise, banks just need time and they will heal. Fantastic. So... With BTFP, banks need to sell this. So even though it's a very uh, scary looking chart, it doesn't necessarily matter because banks don't need to sell. They can just no, bring it to so the all the red evaporates. So those are those unrealized losses. Normally, if I'm going to borrow from the discount window, I have to borrow at what the value of the security is. So if it's only pricing at 90 cents, that's all I can borrow from the Fed. And there's a haircut on top of that. So th that's all I can get. The BTFP says, hey, you can borrow at par. So that's essentially zero gain or loss. You get your full par amount and there's no haircut. And if the rate goes lower tomorrow, you can lower your rate. So that's the BTFP is, is, is really, it saved the day for, I think, probably a lot of banks. And I don't know if you're going to show it now or not. I don't know if I forget what other graphs you have, but the banks right now, are kind of same thing. And, and, you know, you're at the four big U S banks. I mean, you know, they, they don't care about this either. They know this is all going to go away. Bonds mature. All of that loss goes to zero with time. Bonds move towards par. If I own a bond and it priced at 80 cents, when it matures, I get a hundred cents. If I own a bond at 120, that's how much it's worth. 120. If I, if it's, or yeah, valued at 120 and it matures, I get a hundred back. I get I get a dollar back. So gains disappear, losses disappear. That's just how bonds work, and they always have been. Fantastic. Okay. So I have uh, when we talk about the the Fed impairing um, a lot of financial institutions, U.S. Treasuries are obviously something that they've been able to ameliorate with this financial engineering with BTFP, mm -hmm. bringing those unrealized losses to zero staving off that fire sale of those assets. But there are a few big areas uh, where you know those losses are still uh, accruing per se as these rates are, are elevated and these rate hikes move uh, through the markets and eventually move into uh, corporates, uh, move to corporates, move to consumers. The first chart here that I want to show is 
uh, distressed corporate debt. So right now, this is ballooned up to $590 billion. And for the viewers, distressed corporate debt just means uh, either bonds that are trading at a 1,000 basis point spread or higher, and loans that are trading at 80 cents or lower. And that's considered distressed. So Randy, as we look at this, and as the Fed is slated to hike once more by 25 basis points on Wednesday, given that we're now approaching 18 months since the Fed's first rate hike, you know, what are your thoughts on the outlook for corporate credit markets as this distressed debt bubble continues piling up? So again, credit is not my area, but so I can, I'll, but I can, on a macro level, I can certainly speak to it. So you've got uh, rates at essentially zero for 15 years. You, you put that on steroids in, you know, because of COVID in 20 and 21 and you you crush spreads, you crush, you buy mortgages, you you take the you know the benefit out of those. So, you know, not only are borrowers able to refi the lowest rates ever, investors have to go to stuff like this to get any sort of yield because they're not getting it anywhere else. So everything's awesome for you know all these years, particularly in 2021. Now you reverse the whole thing on everybody. How could you not have problems? So all these borrowers are going to have to refinance this debt. They're not very few of these corporate borrowers are borrowing bonds and then just paying them off and oh, we don't need the money anymore. No, they're going to they're going to refinance the debt. If not, they're going to want to grow the debt cuz hey, if we have more debt, we can get bigger and bigger and bigger so we need more and more debt. Now, you know, to look at this thing, I particularly look at real estate, rates are now, you know, 500 basis points higher. Spreads are probably higher, so take that to 750 basis points higher whole new ball game. I have all this infrastructure that I've, uh, you know, every, you know, you got to take, when you borrow money, you got to create cash flows that help you pay down that debt or at, or at least pay the interest payments. Well, all of a sudden my interest payments are going to go so much higher. They're going to double, triple, quadruple. Did my, if my infrastructure of what I invested, is that stuff really bringing me multitudes more cash flow back than they did, you know, two, three, four years ago, I don't think so, which means how are they, how are they going to fund these debt payments? And how are they going to refi these debt payments when, you know, credit is being, is, is in contraction, less banks are, are willing to lend. So yeah, you're going to have a problem. These guys are either going to have to come up with the equity to pay these loans down or the, the, you're going to see failures. I don't know. I, you got to see failures. I don't, there's no other way. Absolutely. It, it's beginning to seem like there is no other way. 100%. So we talked about commercial real estate and I think, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we got, we got plenty of time here. We'll talk about this for as long as we need to, because obviously this is a pretty big can of worms. Um, plenty of distressed commercial real estate out there. Several numbers we can go to. There was a tweet that you put out uh, a few days ago. Um, actually two weeks ago now, it says extend and pretend, cross mm -hmm. your fingers. And the extend yeah. and pretend situation has been getting um, increasingly prevalent. I believe I read somewhere that uh, as of April, 30% of US office debt that was set to mature was extended um, either to later in the year or to the following year. And so it seems like with uh, by uh, from certain stats, which may be pretty conservative, uh, that signal there's uh, roughly 20% vacancy in US metro office space. It seems like that distress is, is you know, th these, these commercial real estate mortgages are beginning to be really distressed. And the chart that I have up here 
uh, for the viewers is one of uh, small banks and large banks. Um, who writes more commercial real estate loans? Mm -hmm. And you'll note that in the red, small banks, those regionals, they make up the lion's share of commercial real estate loans, some $1.9 trillion outstanding CRE loans compared to large banks at $0.8 trillion. Randy, what are your thoughts here on the uh, pretty pretty messy commercial real estate situation? It seems to only be getting worse. It's gonna it, it's gonna get worse. Uh, I think we're just in the first inning. Maybe we're on this third pitch. It's we got a lot more to go, and that was the whole point. And I, I would you know you won't get it all. I would tell everybody to go read that that release from the Fed. It was actually from the Fed, the FDIC, the OCC, and the NCUA, which actually a joint release like that. I said this this morning. Uh, I replied to uh, Chris Whalen had a tweet about this because the Wall Street Journal put out an article about this this directive from these agencies to say essentially, hey, right now you need to extend these loans for a year. We know you're having problems. We know they're having problems. So do us a solid, extend it. We'll do you a solid, and we're going to look the other way. Now they give parameters. They don't want you to get too carried away, but let's. I'll give you one is. Hey, here's the, here's a good example. Um, you did that loan at a 75% LTV, loan to value, which means as a bank, I'm going to try to make sure there's plenty of value in that building uh, in addition to what the money I'm giving you that if you fail and you give me the loan, uh, the building back, I can, I can sell it and make my, at least make my money back. And if not more at 75% LTV, we should all be familiar with, with your, if you bought a home or anything. Well, they said, they gave one example, and they say you can go up to say 102% LTV because that means the vet, even the value of the building has come down. And even though the outstanding loan is 102% more, go ahead and extend it. And let's see what happens over the next year. And, and they could get whatever. They Magically, things will get better somehow. And then they give a lot of other examples where they're going to look the other way. And so that is going to forestall reality because if these guys are not forced to sell or basically realize the value of the building, then we don't know the value of the building. We don't know really what the pricing is. Um, the a really, really, God, I forget his Twitter handle, but John Tuig is, he runs, basically he trades loans for Raymond James. He sees all this all day long and he's on Twitter. I think it's, uh, RJ Whole Loans, at RJ Whole Loans, I think. Um, he calls it trophies and trash is the only thing that's trading right now. Trophies are the just the most outstanding buildings in, in a city. Even though everything's going to hell, these buildings are amazing. They're new. People want them and they're willing to trade them. They're willing to buy them at you know really great rates. Perfect. Trash, we're just giving up. We're out. You know, you see this, you know, some of these guys are just turning the keys back in. And if a, if a lender gets uh, a building back they're they want that off their books as, as fast as possible. And they're just going to take the lick and get the hell out of there. Those are the only things really trading. And those are very slim. The mass volume of buildings, nothing's happening. I got a buddy of mine. He does commercial real estate in Nashville. He hasn't done a deal in like two and a half, three years. I mean, that's how dead it is. And we so we don't know reality. And that's what that director from the Fed did is it's extending reality a little bit further. So hopefully, in my mind, 
I think the Fed's like, yeah, we're going to be cutting rates inside a year. So once we start cutting rates, all of this will start correcting a little bit. Now, that's for all commercial loans. Offices are dead. I don't know how some of these, I, we, I don't know how that recovers. My There's uh, 20 people in my building that hold four, five, 600 or something like that. Maybe even 2,000. It's crazy. In Nashville, I'm going to be very curious to see what happens with our building. But it is virtually empty and it's, they still are holding on. I don't know. I don't know for how long, but we'll see. Absolutely. We will see, you know, office space is uh, certainly facing an uphill battle. And I, I tend to think that, uh, you know, it's going to come back to the lenders and it's going to come down to what the Fed is willing to do. Clearly with Treasuries, they've been able to save them. But uh, what, well, what are your thoughts on what the you said something earlier? They didn't make unrealized losses go away. They just made them irrelevant. OK, for mm -hmm. it, they made them so you don't have to recognize it. OK, because if, if they didn't have that and if a, a bank couldn't get a loan, it couldn't find and they had to sell. Okay, the unrealized loss now becomes realized and it's very real. Um, the Fed just eliminated uh, greatly uh, your need to recognize those unrealized losses. So that's that's good. And it, you know, it's a big bailout of sense uh, of sorts, but it probably is a really good. I think it is a good thing. Commercial real estate is going to be a whole different ballgame. They're going to be realized losses here. It's going to impact these regional banks because, as you show here, they're the primary driver of those kinds of loans. They should be because these are mostly community banks, and most of the loans are community buildings and community institutions. Um, but, but, but let me explain one last thing here. I mean, I can stand forever, but I, I know you want to cut this soon. The problem, and I see this on Twitter a lot, the problem is not the refinancing rate. That is a problem, okay? I got a loan of four and a half, and now you're telling me it's eight and a half? That's a problem, okay, in itself. But there is a much, 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 much worse problem. If I have a building, okay, it's this basically called a cap rate. It's what we use. I get cash flow from this building. That tells me how much I can ultimately lend you on a building. So if I lent you a 5% cap rate two, three, four, five years ago, and the value of the building based on the cash flow at $2 million, and I can give you thus, I say, you know, 70% LTV, here's 1.4 million at four and a half percent with your building valued at 2 million, right? You come to me now, hey, it's at eight and a half percent, cap rate's actually 10%. What's that mean? Well, has your have you increased your cash flow in that building? Not really. It's all office rentals, a little bit, not much. Great. That means the building is now worth $1 million. And by the way, I can't lend you 70% LTV, which would allow me to give you 700000 I can only lend you at 50% LTV, so I can only give you 500000 And you did a IO, you know, interest-only loan. You really didn't pay off any principal during that time. So you still owe $1.4 million on this loan with this building as collateral that is now only worth, you know, uh, a million, and I can only give you $500,000. So you got to come to the table with $900,000 equity in order to refi five, only $500,000. I, I hope that makes sense to people. That's the problem is I can't get enough money to even uh, even at current rates – to repay the loan. That's the tragedy here. 
And that's what hasn't hit the books yet. That's what we're not realizing. That's what the Fed and the OCC and the FDIC and the NCUA just tried to put off into the future is, okay, let's see if we can give this guy another year. And hopefully something happens in that year where this problem goes away. That's that. That's that's what people need to realize. That's the horrible thing here is, oh, my God, I can't get the money at all. Hmm. Absolutely. Definitely extremely disconcerting. And uh, one one last thing before we go, somewhat facetious, somewhat not really. This is the current state of office to residential conversions. Uh, Randy, do you think that this is a, this is the strategy we'll see to help bring the housing market back into supply and demand, back into supply with one another? Is this if you the talk future? To, yeah. If you talk to a commercial, commercial real estate realtor, broker, that's exactly what they're going to tell you. Oh, here's what's going to happen. That's total BS. It's not. Um, the numbers just don't work. It's not going to work that way. These buildings aren't meant to be like this. I mean, yeah. Are we going to be examples? Sure. Is that a panacea? Absolutely not. There's no freaking way. I mean, the, my building in Nashville, they were planning. I don't actually know why the loan blew up, but the loan, it just had sold several months ago. They were going to make it all medical offices. So that was the idea. They're going to put a restaurant in and then going to have all these different medical offices, you know, anywhere from dental to MRIs and whatever. And for whatever reason, the loan just fell through, didn't come through, and they're they're back to square one, trying to get rid of that building that doesn't have any tenants. And so, um, no, I don't think there's a panacea at all. Fantastic. Well, Randy, it's been fantastic. I, I've wanted to do this for quite some time, and I think that the viewers got a great deal of value out of this episode. We covered a great deal. Um, any closing thoughts, any parting thoughts on fixed income, the Fed, markets, the path yeah. forward over the next many months? I'm going to do a plug for not not even really a friend, but I, I want to tell you something. I'm so hyped about this book. So this is uh, – Andy is a guy at the BBC that has studied and reported on LIBOR uh, back from the beginning, from 07, once it started to become. This book just came out called Rigged, and basically – what he's going to explain in here, and, and I've talked to him a little bit about it. And, and I, LIBOR, when I went to Bloomberg in 88, that was the first thing I was taught. Okay, the first thing you got to know is what LIBOR is because it's so important. And for you too, Joe, something you should read, and I think you should get Andy on this podcast, is he is explaining basically everything that happened in 08, 09, and 10 with LIBOR was there was no rigging. What was rigged is we had to have scapegoats because we want to kill LIBOR. This is the central banks. We're going to kill LIBOR because we have to control this short rate, not the market. And up until 08, the market controlled LIBOR, and then the Fed took it over, the central banks took it over, and then they had to have scapegoats to go, oh, see, well, we had to take it over because they were rigging it and they were making huge profits and da-da-da. It was all BS. That's going to be a really exciting book. If you're into the Fed, if you're into financial markets, this is the kind of book that really is going to give you a, a, a deep look into how violently these central banks want to control financial markets. And I think everyone's going to learn a lot from it. And once I finish it reading, I'm hopefully going to get Andy and I would you know get him on as many podcasts as I can because you guys need to know the story. There's a lot of people who weren't even – Probably you weren't even in this market at all in 08. And I was six. I was six or seven. Yeah, yeah there you go. Okay, no, that's so depressing for me to hear. But it's 
it's such a story worthy of your attention. I highly recommend that. And uh, and I forget Andy Verity. He's on Twitter, V-E-R-I-T-Y. Get after it, man. It's 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 a hell of a story. And I and listen, LIBOR's not it, it. They're killing it, but there are ramifications already coming. And you watch; it's going to continue to be a topic. Fantastic, Randy. Thanks so much. You heard the man. Go check out "Rigged" by Andy Verity. You can find the link for that Amazon book in the description. You can get it on Audible as well. Go read that book, and we'll get Andy on the show because the transition to Stouffer, and uh, I love the whole uh, idea that it was. If you do it, let me co-host with you because I, I I'll know I I know what to point to, and and from my experience in you know oh six oh seven and oh eight particularly, uh, I know what they did, and and boy, he's got a great story. Fantastic. We'll do it. I love it. All right. So Randy, thanks again for coming on the show. Uh, before we log off here, where can people find you? Well, I'm on Twitter, uh, at the bond freak, which very quick. I just got that from, uh, uh Nicholas cage. And, uh, what was that movie he did out there with the, the, uh, Ellis Island or not Ellis Island, the, uh, uh, Oh God, I forget the name. But basically he saves the world with the nuclear bomb in San Francisco. There's a scene. He goes, the guy goes, Oh, so you're the chemical freak. He goes, well, no, I'm the chemical super freak actually. And when I got my Twitter account, I couldn't do super bond freak. So I had, to, <laughs> I couldn't do uh, bond super freak. I had to use it shorter. But anyway, um, that's it. I don't sell anything. I don't have anything to sell. I just, I like educating. And I had a lot of people in my career that took a lot of effort to educate me that made me so much better at what I do. I just love doing it. And I learn a lot from all of you. So uh, that's it. Of course, absolutely. One of the best followers in the space. If you have Twitter, you don't have Twitter, I'd highly suggest following Randy. A, a great a great mentor. Great to take a look at the timeline and learn from him. Uh, and of course, thank you so much for tuning in today at the Bitcoin Layer. You can subscribe and hit the notification bell so you don't forget when we upload. You can also check us out on Fountain. It's a direct-to-listener uh, podcast app where you can pay us in Satoshi's and uh, you can have all that Bitcoin functionality with you there. Uh, but that's it for today's show. Randy, once again, thanks for coming on and uh, we'll talk to you later. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate it. Special thanks to River for sponsoring this channel. Purchase Bitcoin with zero fees when you dollar cost average and know your assets are held in multi-sig cold storage with 100% full reserves. Not letting it out to anybody you'll have peace of mind. Plus, River has their own built-in infrastructure, so they don't rely on third-party custodians. It's all in-house. There's a new standard in Bitcoin, and River is setting it. Get started at River by visiting river.com or by clicking the link in the video description.